Father, the gift of your word is something that I think we take for granted so often, Father. We just assume it'll be there and we assume it's waiting for us when we have time for it. And we take for granted we can open it and understand it. We take for granted, Father, that um, the things we've understood are things that you've revealed for all to know. And Father, these things just aren't true. The, the, the word of God is eternal. It lasts forever. It's been there long before we came into existence and it will always be. And it is not known except that you reveal it. And its power to walk us into righteousness is so great. And to correct us in sin, it, it's so profound that how do we ever take it for granted? I thank you, Father, that we have it. And that it is the thing we live by, as Jesus told us, not by bread alone, but by every word. Father, that's what we live by. And I thank you, Father, that we can have that here today and tonight, that we can learn things tonight that we didn't know before we walked in. And then we can take them with us when we go. They don't just sit in our minds, they change our hearts. We thank you, Father, for that. And Father, with all that it does and for all the reasons we are so thankful for it, Father, forgive us when we have set it aside either out of neglect or disobedience. Help us to do better. And Father, for tonight's sake, explain the pages of Scripture that we'll look at. Show us what it means. Help us understand how to put it to work in our life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, we are nearing the end of the mid-tribulation period. You may be thinking that's something you're thankful for. We've been in this for a while now. But as we do, I want to take a moment to stitch some things together. I think it's hard at some point when you've heard a lot of teaching to keep it all straight, right? uh, Charts, slides, and the like, they help. So let's start with one we ended with last week. And this is, this one we're going to work with here for just a moment. I use this chart simply to illustrate the major topics that we've been looking at in the mid-trib period and which chapters they come out of. And in the last couple of weeks, three weeks or so, we've been in 11 and 12 and 13, and in these chapters we've seen a variety of things. And we're about to see more tonight with the final chapter of mid-trib. But before we look at the final chapter and put it on top there, the capstone, let's go back into these first three, and I want to explore them with you in a little more detail. So the trigger for all of the mid-tribulation events that we've studied in these chapters, I would argue has been Satan's casting down from heaven. That in other words, what was the first thing that happened to move us from the first half of tribulation into the events of mid-trib? And I would argue it's when Satan was cast down. So Satan being cast down from heaven, having lost that war with Michael, that gave him an understanding that his time was short. And from there, I think he was a catalyst for everything else that followed. So Satan loses the war with Michael. He's bound to the earth at that point, and so his first response is to start lashing out. So he attacks the saints, he attacks the Jewish people, and of course that requires then that the Lord take the remnant of Israel and put them in Batra. And that causes Satan to redirect, and from there he seeks a new strategy, and he begins to orchestrate the death and the resurrection of one man, the Antichrist. He has him killed by those three kings in Jerusalem, and then he just as quickly resurrects him so that he can now indwell him and put him to work in the plan that he has to rule the world. After the resurrection of the Antichrist, the world is stunned. They celebrate him as a savior. And what does the Antichrist do now indwelt by Satan? His first act is to kill the three kings and to kill the two witnesses who stand in his way in Jerusalem. And then he walks into the temple and he declares himself to be God and that there is now no one else to be worshipped. Eventually, he must leave the city. He completes his conquest of the world over a period of time and begins to persecute the saints. Now, before he goes from the city of Jerusalem, Satan raises up a second man who will be a false prophet. And when he's in the presence of the Antichrist, because he has to be in the presence of Satan to have his power, he possesses great power. And he tells the world to worship the Antichrist And he sets up an image of the Antichrist in the temple so that when the Antichrist eventually does leave Jerusalem, as he will here shortly, there's still something left behind for everyone to focus their worship on. And then he institutes a new religious order for the world that says you have to take a mark of the beast. If you don't, you can't buy and sell. And if you refuse the mark, then you're executed. All right, so that's what we just studied in a nutshell. And it all lays out, I think, in a bit of cause and effect when you put it in that sequence. 
And of course, I might be wrong on any one of those little details, but in terms of the order of things or the relative timing of things, but they all happen. We've studied that. And I think you can see the cause and effect in most cases. All of that happens in a relatively brief period of time. Whether it's a few days, a few weeks at most, it's not a very long time. It's centered on the midpoint of tribulation as we've been watching. But obviously in some cases it takes more than a moment for these things to play out. Now at this stage we have one more chapter within the book of Revelation that is tied to the mid-trib. Now I've been telling you all along that each of these chapters we know is part of mid-trib because they have that one marker somewhere in them that says it's either three and a half years or it's you know, in either time times half a time, 42 months, 1260 days, etc. Well, chapter 14 breaks that pattern. Uh, I wish it hadn't because it would make my teaching sound so much smarter, but it's a mid-trib chapter. You, you, you understand that from what it says, but it doesn't have a time marker in it, except indirectly. It makes a comment or two that references Daniel, and Daniel makes the time marker. So I'm still putting it in mid-trib because I believe that's where it goes. And then 15, as we leave, will complete this segue out of the main events and put us back into the judgments. All right, so let's set the scene for chapter 14. I want to do that with a brief transition out of the events of 13 last week. Remember last week, you have the false prophet now requiring all humanity to worship the Antichrist, to take a mark on their bodies. If they do not worship the image or take the mark, then they're going to be killed and they can't buy or sell in the meantime. So the false prophet's requirements put all of humanity between a rock and a hard place. That is, on the one hand, refuse the mark and die. And on the other hand, take the mark, but then you're forever excluded from the possibility of receiving salvation. So that's the dilemma now. That's the dichotomy. So back at the end of chapter 13, verse 8, we read that all who dwell on the earth will worship him, the Antichrist, Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So everyone in the world, beginning at mid-trib, has to make a public declaration for or against the Antichrist. And to make a declaration for or against is simply to take the mark or not. There is no room for undecideds. There are no more agnostics. You pick one. The world is going to be polarized into just these camps. And within the overall population of the world, those who take the mark and don't, there is a couple of further divisions. You can actually divide up what we know will be on the earth at that point into five groups. I'm going to put all unbelievers in their own category for a moment. That is to say, all who take the mark kind of sit over here on the side, no longer Are they going to receive, or can they receive salvation? Their future is now set. But of those who have not taken the mark, there are four groups. We looked at this a little bit last week. So let's start with the one that we know the most about. That is, of those who choose not to worship the beast, you will have both Jew and Gentile, starting with the believing remnant of Israel, the Jews who have been ushered into the wilderness by God to protect them in Batra, right? We remember that group. So they're under protection. And then you have, secondly, a believing Gentiles. Uh, believing Gentiles are not in Batra. They're not being protected. They're not the woman who flees in the desert. And so as a result, they're going to experience persecution. Most of them are going to be martyred. There will be some left at the very end of tribulation who survive. We'll see that later. And then thirdly, there will be unbelievers who are Jewish and as a result, holding to their orthodoxy, do not take the mark. They still believe in Yahweh, the the God of Israel, and they will not bow their knee to any other God. They, too, will be persecuted, and many of them will die, but as well, some of them will survive until the very end of tribulation. But there is one more distinct group. I mentioned this last week. And this fourth group never takes the mark of the beast, so they, too, will be persecuted. But unlike the earlier two groups I mentioned, believing Gentiles and actually all three groups, Unlike all three of these, none of this fourth group will live to the end of tribulation. In fact, none of them live past mid-trib. And that fourth group are the 144,000 Jews of Revelation chapter 7. They all die by mid-trib. And we see that in our study tonight. Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name 
and the name of his father written on their foreheads. All right, we're going to stop there. That's the opening scene, and that gets us started with a conversation about these 144,000. John's vision transitions out of what he had been seeing earlier in chapter 13 to that now of the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now, we know from earlier chapters in Revelation what the Lamb of God is, and even if you hadn't read the book of Revelation, you would know the answer to that question. We saw Jesus earlier described this way. So we know this is Jesus, and now we're told he's standing on Mount Zion. Now, today in Jerusalem, There is a mount called Mount Zion. It is directly south of Mount Moriah, which is the mount we commonly call the Temple Mount. So the Temple Mount and Mount Moriah, they're part of the same little rise or range of hills in Jerusalem, but they're different peaks. Mount Zion is just the southerly peak, slightly lower in in altitude or in in, um, height than Mount Moriah, which is slightly higher and to the north. And Mount Moriah is where Herod built the temple. Mount Zion sits slightly south. Now in Herod's day, Mount Zion was actually a part of the Temple Mount. After that was destroyed and then later was rebuilt by the Ottomans, the Ottomans didn't extend the southern wall as far south as Herod had. So they actually made a smaller enclosure to the north. So today when you're in Jerusalem, you see the southern end of the wall cut between Mount Moriah and Mount Zion rather than encompassing both of them as it was originally the case with Herod. So today, as you stare over at the Mount Zion, you see a, 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 there's a Catholic church on top and some other uh, buildings, and it's, it's just like that today. That's Mount Zion. So if you hear John saying that he sees Jesus on Mount Zion, well, at first you might wonder, does that mean he's now come back to earth and he's standing in Jerusalem? But there are problems with that view, beginning with what we see here in the rest of this chapter. Now think about this. The last time you saw the Lamb standing anywhere, It was in chapter 8 when he was still in the throne room of God breaking the seventh seal. Now at that time we know he was in heaven. That was part of the same scene that began in chapter 4. And then if you fast forward from here, the next time you see Jesus being described as taking part in any action at all, he's in heaven in the throne room still preparing to return to the earth in chapter 19. So logically, if before this scene he's in heaven, And after this scene, he's in heaven and hasn't returned for his second coming yet at that point. Well, it makes no sense to assume that somewhere in the middle, he just slips out the window and goes down to earth for a little while, you know, on the side. No, this is not Jesus returning to earth. It would be an interruption of the scene, and it would actually be contradictory to what chapter 19 tells us about his second coming. Um, So logically, we would expect the lamb to have remained in heaven this whole time. So what is it that it means, what, what do we take from the text then when it says that he's standing on Mount Zion at mid-trib, not at the end where we expect to see him, but still in the middle of the seven years? Well, before we answer that question, just take another look at what the scene shows you. You have 144,000 there standing with Jesus, having the name of the Father written on their foreheads. Now, that group is also equally obvious. It's the ones that we saw mentioned back in chapter 7 where they were sealed on their forehead with this name and commissioned by God to be evangelists. They went out as a result of that and they brought an uncountable multitude to faith back in chapter seven, which we now understand was the work of these men for the first three and a half years of the time of tribulation. Now, since that chapter, we haven't heard anything about these guys. We know the effect of their work, but they haven't been mentioned. Now you get into the mid-trib chapters, chapter 14, and here you see them again. Now they're standing with Jesus on Mount Zion. Back to the question then, are we to say that Jesus and these 144,000 are standing on the literal Mount Zion that we're looking at on that photo? No, because if that were so, it would mean that they're on earth with Jesus standing on earth, and as such, it would defy the timeline of Daniel, which says that the rock doesn't come to destroy the statue and set up the kingdom until the end. And when he comes, he puts an end to all other kingdoms. Well, if he's standing on Mount Zion, then the Antichrist wouldn't be alive. But it's quite the contrary. The Antichrist is just getting going. So this cannot be a scene on earth. Where is it then? Well, if we just move a little further in the text, it becomes pretty clear. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. 
These are the ones who had not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. All right, so as John sees Jesus and the 144,000, in that same scene, he hears a voice from the throne room, a voice that's not really a voice, it's like a loud thundering sound. In fact, he says it also sounds like a bunch of harpists playing. I think if a bunch of harpists playing sounds like thunder, they're not doing it right. <laughs> but whatever. Um, he, he comes from the throne, which would indicate this is the voice of God. So John says the 144,000 then begin singing before the throne of God in response to this voice of God coming from the center of the throne. And they are singing before the throne of God, before the creatures of the throne, before the elders. And they are the only ones singing because they're the only ones who know this song. It's something unique for them. So look, if you've got 144,000 men singing a song and they're the only ones singing and it's before the throne room of God, it's not hard to understand where they are right now. They're in the throne room of God, which makes sense because that's where the Lamb has been this whole time as well. And they're with him. So then we just flip the question around. Well, we know they're in heaven, but why did he say Mount Zion then? Well, because Mount Zion is a common term in the Bible for the kingdom of Israel in glory. It's a general way. Zionism or Zionists are people who are trying to bring about a Jewish kingdom on earth to bring to fruition or fulfillment the promises that say one day Israel will be the chief nation and rule above all other nations. Now, Many Zionists are trying to do it in purely human terms, in a political sense. And as such, they're hated by those who oppose an ascendant Israel, like Arabs, for one thing. But in biblical terms, it's a reference to the kingdom. When Jesus sets up a kingdom, and that's not a political issue, that's a spiritual issue. It will come, and no one on earth will stop it when the day comes. But in the meantime, as we await Mount Zion's arrival on earth, in that sense, then what does Mount Zion mean today? In other words, what is its current form? Well, the New Testament says there is a Mount Zion in heaven. And we see that in Hebrews 12, 22, for example, and as well in Romans 11. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. That is to say, you can imagine that what is in heaven now will eventually be revealed on earth. That is, the glory of God in the temple will be a glory of God in his temple in the kingdom. And Jesus standing by the throne will be Jesus on earth. And the glory of saints resurrected and living sinlessly forever, as it will be at first in heaven, will make its way to earth in the kingdom. And Paul says Jesus comes from that very place when he comes to return to earth, Romans eleven six, So all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come not to Zion, from Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So you need to put Zion, the word Zion, in a context, however you hear it. Today, if it's said in simple terms, I'm gonna go meet you at Mount Zion, it's the hill, all right? If someone says, I am a Zionist, they're saying I wanna create a politically as ascendant Israel that rules its neighbors. And if you hear the Bible saying a Mount Zion before it actually arrives on earth, it's speaking of something in heaven. So where is Jesus? In heaven. Where are the 144,000? In heaven. Where's Mount Zion? In heaven at this point in history. It all fits. So this chapter is opening with a scene of 144,000, the men we saw in chapter seven, in heaven. What does it mean if you're in heaven? You're dead. Your body is, anyway. You have died. And they are said to be dead because we saw in the text they have been purchased from the earth and purchased in this context. That is, when you're speaking about someone having died and you call it being purchased from the earth, you're talking about someone who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ, purchased, redeemed, and in that sense, they're in heaven because they're the redemption of Jesus put them in heaven as in instead of hell. So they've been purchased from the earth. They've been saved and brought to heaven. Those are the same things, okay? Back in chapter five, we actually heard something very similar. In five, nine, this is in the throne room. Remember chapters four and five are that continuous scene in the throne room. It's the scene that shows us that the rapture's happened. It lies between the times that are, the church, 
and the start of the judgments in chapter six. In between those two, you see that one, two, that two chapter scene of Jesus and the Father and the Spirit in the, heaven, in the heavenly throne room. And in that moment, there was a song sung before the, the, uh, the throne by the elders. And verse nine says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, nation, people and nation. Same idea. That Jesus has brought to himself in heaven these people. All right? So, in verse four we have, or in verses one through three, we find this news out that in chapter 14, guess what? At mid-trib, all the 144,000 are dead. Now, that's a good thing for them, obviously. They're in heaven. And in verse four, we're given the reason for their death. Uh, they were the first fruits for God. Now, what does that mean? Well, the concept of first fruits is found throughout Scripture, and the concept's actually pretty simple. During a reaping of produce in the field, the best fruit is typically the fruit you're going to harvest first. You've ever heard the phrase low hanging fruit? Why is it low hanging? Because it's big, it's heavy, it's ripe, it's ready. And it's not just that it's reachable, the fact that it's reachable is a consequence of its desirability. And so you take the best stuff first. Why would you leave it on the tree? It'll just rot. So the most ripe, best fruit comes down first. And in the law, the Lord called for Israel to give to the Lord an offering of first fruits. That is, the Lord deserves the first and the best in everything, including in the bounty of the lamb. And then when you think about it, he's the one giving the produce in the first place. You're just kind of giving it back to him to acknowledge that he provided it. And so the concept of first fruits is this, taking it out of an agrarian context and just generalizing it for a minute, the concept of first fruits is the best goes first. The best goes first, that's what it means. And the best goes to the Lord, the best belongs to the Lord, all right? The best goes first, the best goes to the Lord. And so in verse four, we're told that these men are such. They are the ones who follow Jesus everywhere. They are in heaven, so we know that obviously they've died. They have died before the second half of tribulation because we're still at mid-trib, which tells us they are the first martyrs, they are the best martyrs, they are for Jesus. They're his martyrs, so to speak. They aren't necessarily the very first people to die. I'm not saying that if you took all of humanity who has died up to this point, the first 144,000 that died are these men. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is they're the first group of any distinction to enter complete into heaven. They're the first finished group of martyrs and they do it all in the first half of tribulation. So what made this privileged group the best and the first? Well, number one, they were the first to receive faith after the rapture. These were the very, they brought faith back to earth. That is by God's appointing, they were the first to believe on earth among a world of unbelievers. They were the first to spread the gospel. Uh, they were set apart from earthly pleasures like marriage so they could be dedicated to serving Jesus. They were single-minded in their task. In verse five, we're told they never lie, which is a pretty powerful testimony for anyone, frankly. And now I'm not saying they were sinless, but it appears they lived on a level of like Paul or the other apostles. I mean, they had a sanctified lifestyle in a difficult time of life. So simply put, they were models of obedience and service, and they were the first to bring about a, a, a revival, if you will, to the earth. And then as an additional measure of grace for them, the Lord allowed them to be the first martyrs, and as such, they are removed from the earth before the great tribulation, before the second half of tribulation starts, which is worse than the first half. So although I suspect they were probably being killed throughout the first half, maybe at different points along the way, that probably reaches a crescendo once you get to the point of people having to take a mark. Uh, I'm sure these men, we know these men, did not take the mark, obviously. So at that point, they're probably quickly killed at the very end of the first half of tribulation. And now that all have been martyred, they're standing with Jesus in the heavenly Mount Zion awaiting the end of tribulation. So... A question arises at this point, especially if you remember chapter seven. If the 144,000 were sealed in chapter seven, you remember that? Then how is it they're being killed if they were sealed? Wouldn't that sealing have protected them? Wasn't that the whole point of the sealing? Back in chapter uh, seven, verse two, it says, I saw another angel ascending 
from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. And what we said back then was that sealing, based in the context there, would indicate a supernatural prevention of harm from the disasters that were coming. I mean, it wouldn't make any sense, right? Save a bunch of guys, and then immediately all hell breaks loose on earth, and they all die, and there goes your evangelistic plan, right? It wouldn't have made sense for God to let that happen. So he is protecting them. Now, if you also remember, I told you from what we read in Revelation 6.6, when God said, as he's breaking the seals, he said, do not harm the oil and the wine. You remember I told you back then, those are classic pictures in, in Scripture of Israel, olive oil, grapes for wine, and as such, it's a bit of a coded message. It wasn't intended to be as you know, easy to understand to the, to the plain eye. It was meant to be a coded message to someone who understands the depths of Scripture to make clear that Israel, the land of Israel, will be excluded from the natural disasters of the first half of tribulation. It will be a safe harbor for the people of Israel while the rest of the world's being torn asunder. And what we're learning then is the 144,000 were sealed individually while Israel itself was protected geographically so that if the 144,000 had to venture outside the, the land of Israel, they would maintain their personal protection wherever they went, but Jews who stayed in Israel were protected in the land, much like what God did to Goshen in the time of the Egyptian plagues, where Goshen was kept from experiencing the plagues during that period. All right, so now, though, the time has come for them to be martyred, and so by logical deduction, God removes the sealing. That is, he now permits their death. It's the same analog to the two witnesses. For three and a half years, nobody can touch them, as soon as the Lord was ready for that to end, the beast is able to kill them. It's the same thing here again. I mean, these guys were not gonna live forever. You know, they were gonna die at some point, so the whole point is to make a use of them to a point and then to see the end of them when God is ready. What would it say to us then that God is ready for 144,000 evangelists, the chief evangelists of earth, for that matter? What does it say to us that he's ready for them to die? What it tells us, plainly, is that the time for evangelism has come to an end that it's a highly symbolic move. It's telegraphing God's intent. If these guys all die, it must mean he's done with that phase. He's done with that work. Remember back in chapter 13, we read this. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here's the perseverance and the faith of the saints. That is, God has purposed to allow believers to experience, among other things, martyrdom. And the first fruits of that martyrdom will be the 144,000. And by their example, and you see this now from front to back, by their example of faith, they became evangelists for the rest of the world. By their example of martyrdom, that is going to death in faith, going to death in perseverance, they set the example now for the second half of tribulation. They set the example for the first half by coming to faith. They set the example for the second half by dying a good death and not trading their faith, recanting as it might happen for some out of fear. Back in chapter 12, we were told that the mid-trib period would include believers beginning to die rather than bending their knee to Satan. We studied that here. Verse 10, I heard, this is from chapter 12, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when they faced death. That will be the new reality. So the martyring of 144,000 is one of several signs we've seen and we'll see again that tell us that the opportunity to be saved by the grace of God has come to an end on earth. Uh, you are a believer at this point or you are not, the ones who are believing will be martyred, most of them. The ones who are not believing will take the mark and never have an opportunity to believe. There are only some very small exceptions to that, which we will cover later. So the undecided column is quickly dropping to zero at mid-trib. So who is left to save at this point? That is to say, if you believe, for argument's sake, that evangelism hasn't ended, as I'm telling you that it does, well, all right, play that out for a minute. Who's getting saved at this point? Who is being evangelized and who is doing the evangelism? 
the saved at this point who believe are now being persecuted mercilessly and many of them are dying. And to make yourself known as someone who has not taken the mark is to basically put a bullseye on your back, more so than it has ever been true on earth before. And who are you trying to reach even if you are going out? Everyone who does not believe at that point has been told take the mark or die. How many of them do you think are still floating around yet to take the mark? I'm not talking among those who have a strong religious opinion like Orthodox Jews. I'm saying put aside those. I'm talking about among those who have no dog in the fight. Why would they not be taking the mark? I mean, you might imagine that a few don't, but I'm telling you that's a pretty slim imagination because at this point, it's die or take the mark and they think the Antichrist is God. Why wouldn't they take his mark? So just playing it out, there's really no one to be evangelized at this point who isn't already staking their claim to God in some other form, that isn't already evangelized. The only exception would be the Orthodox Jews. Meanwhile, the Lord isn't done with evangelism. That is to say, he was done with human evangelism. But the Lord offers one final opportunity for the world in Revelation 14.6. It says, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. All right, so John sees another angel. He's flying in mid-heaven. Now, remember, mid-heaven is simply the biblical way of saying the atmosphere, the actual sky. And the last time you saw an angel flying in mid-heaven was when we saw the angel announcing to the world that the three woe judgments were about to start. And here you have another heavenly declaration. This time he's preaching an eternal Gospel to the world, John says. He calls it an eternal gospel because it's the very same message that has always been preached. There has only ever been one way to be saved. There has only ever been one plan of salvation. There has only ever been one message, one gospel, period. Now, the details of that message have expanded over time as God has revealed more of it to people, right? So it got more specific, over time, but the thrust of the message never changed. The, the, the basic message itself was there from the very beginning, from Adam and woman in the garden, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to Samuel, to David, to the apostles, from Abel to Zechariah. They all had the same message in varying portions and ways, as the writer of Hebrews says, and that message has always been summed up as the righteous will live by faith. And here you have an angel delivering it one last time to the world of this age. And in this case, he declares that the window's closing, salvation train is leaving the station, time's running out, the hour of judgment has come. And when you see the word hour used in a context like this, it just means a very short time. It's not literally 60 minutes. It just means the, the time of salvation is very short now. So don't uh, fear the Antichrist, don't fear physical death, fear the Lord and trust him who made all things. And then that angelic declaration, having now been given, is the final presentation of the gospel to the entire world by anyone prior to Christ's coming. This is it. And it's further proof that there is no longer any human evangelism taking place. Why? Because once God has made a pronouncement, you notice to every tribe, nation, and tongue, he, it says in the text, no one was excluded from this, and it came from the mouth of an angel directly. There's a principle in Scripture that typically, or I would say generally, God does not allow a lesser messenger to find success with a message when a greater messenger has previously failed at that same effort. So when Jesus delivers the gospel to someone in their hearing, then that person will not be able to receive the gospel from an apostle later. And when an apostle sends the gospel to somebody, typically you will not see that same person receive it from a lesser messenger later. Now, I'm not saying there aren't exceptions, but what I am saying is that's a general principle because it honors, it dishonors the greater for the sake of the lesser. And in this case, you now have God speaking through an angelic messenger to literally every human being of the gospel. What more do you want? And at this point, there's, it's, it's the capstone. It's really the punctuation mark on the whole of God's effort in this period. And that's why he, the, the angel says the hour is short. This is it. 
Take it or leave it. And by the way, this is a fulfillment of something you've read elsewhere in the Gospels, and sometimes it's missing, this passage I'm about to show you is sometimes misinterpreted to suggest that we today have an obligation to reach every human being, and if we don't, reach everyone with the sound of the gospel, the hearing of the gospel, Jesus can't come back. And have you ever heard this? From Matthew 24? When Jesus says, speaking of the end times, he says, lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. And some who just don't understand the context properly have come to believe that that means that if we aren't sending missionaries to every last corner of the earth, which, by the way, is a perfectly fine thing to do, but they see it as a necessity before Jesus can come back. And every time some new baby is born in some deep, dark, unreached care part of the world, we set Jesus' plan back by another day. You know, and I realize that's not how they would literally say it, but that's the implication. Well, now you understand how Jesus intends to see this fulfilled. Remember, God doesn't need our help. He uses us, that's to our own benefit. That's to our blessing that we're involved in his work. But he doesn't need us. So how is he gonna preach to the whole world? Well, he'll certainly use humanity to reach people, and that's self-evident, but when the time comes to finally check that box, he doesn't waste time waiting for us to get around to it. He puts an angel in the sky, says it loud enough everyone can hear it, box checked. The whole gospel is preached, and then the end will come, which is in keeping with the timing here. It also reminds us, by the way, that evangelism never has been nor ever will be dependent on human beings. This one passage, I would argue, forever negates and renders irrelevant any question or objection that you can raise about how God might save somebody that you might imagine somewhere else on the planet. That is, you ever had that, that conversation about, what about the, the natives in the jungle who've never heard of Jesus? This statement negates and makes irrelevant that concern. It simply demonstrates that if God wants to reach someone, he has ample ability to do so. That is, there will never be a time at any time in, in the future of the, of the universe or eternity when we sit around saying, oh, it's a shame we didn't talk to so-and-so, otherwise they'd be here right now, or it's a shame that God didn't get to that planet, part of the planet, or we would have missed those people. No, Paul was reached without anyone talking to him. Other people have been reached without any human being talking to them. Angels can preach from heaven when the time comes. God can watch, wash a bottle up on the shores when he wants to. He can drop a book from an airplane when he wants to. There is a, he can do anything he wants to, and he can when, he, when he's ready. No one will be unreached simply because they were too far from New York City or some other civilized, semi-civilized place. By the way, I would also say this. I say this all the time. If you're the kind of person who throws that out a lot or has tended to do that, what about all these people that God hasn't talked to yet? They're on the other side of the planet. Well, if that's on your mind, maybe that's a sign you're supposed to be part of that solution. You know, get in the boat and go over there. I mean, I'm not saying that facetiously. I'm saying if that's that heavy on your heart, maybe that's a sign. You need to go talk to some people. All right, back to the text, verse eight. Another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. All right, so we thought it was pretty cool that he gives us an angel telling us about the gospel. Well, he didn't stop there. He says to the earth through a second angel that if, uh, and speaking about the enemy and about his kingdom on earth, he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Now, this is the first mention of the city name, Babylon, in the text of Revelation. Uh, as you've already seen with some other topics, when the topic really matters, it tends to get a lot of focus for a period of time and it will come in pieces over a series of chapters like the beast, as we've seen already, or other key issues like one, the 144,000. Well, Babylon is another of these major topics that will get a lot of attention through multiple chapters of the book. This is the first mention of it. It's very brief in passing. Uh, it really comes to bear in chapters 17 and 18. So when we get into that part will really deal with what it means 
to be Babylon and all that comes with it. For now, we're just gonna set it aside, but it's a reference to the Antichrist's kingdom. I can tell you that much, at least for now. And so he says, the second angel says, fallen is Babylon the great. You might see at mid-trib this ascendant antichrist, this growing power and savior to the world, but you need to know he's as good as fallen. He won't survive. You know, that's a sign to the world. Don't bet on him. You'll be betting on the wrong horse. And then a third angel. And the third angel says, if you bet on that horse, that is, if you take the mark of the beast, you're going to be part of the crowd tormented forever. There is no second chance for anyone with the mark of the beast because, frankly, there's no source of truth after this moment. That is, even if you were to say, well, you can take the mark and then erase it later, but who's gonna make them wanna do that? There's no source of truth on earth anymore. There's no one preaching the gospel. There's no church on the corner anymore. There's no movement of people toward the, the truth. It's, it's done. So God himself, having preached by means of an angel, there are no longer any human messengers being used. No more evangelism. So the fate of every person on earth is sealed at mid-trib. That is with, a, with only a few exceptions, which I keep saying we'll cover. Moreover, for those who take the mark and put themselves out of reach in that sense, they join anyone else who dies in, without faith, as throughout history. I mean, everyone from Cain onward who has died without any redemption, they all exist in the same state. That is punishment that is eternal and terrible. And in verse 10, we have one of the most detailed descriptions of it. Actually, in the whole Bible, the specific judgment is said to be of burning and suffering in torment. Those who die absent faith are suffering the wrath of God, it says, for their sin. In intense heat, day and night, without rest, and some start to you know, feel nervous and uncomfortable at this point when you hear this because you wonder, well, even someone who does the worst things should be able to pay that debt off after a while. I mean, why is it forever? That seems like it's not fitting the crime in their sense. Well, you've missed the point of it then because suffering without end is because they are forever in a sinful state. They suffer not as a result of what they did but as a result of who they are. They're not being born again, so they're not gonna change, so they're still in a state of sin. That means every moment of every day, they're still sinning. They're just sinning there instead of here. So the sin never ends, so the state of suffering never ends. There's no return from that. That's the problem. So they suffer in the presence, it says, of the angels and the Lamb of God, which is a bit of a provocative thought. I don't know exactly how that works out, but I think it has something to do with where the location is relative in the kingdom, there's references in the Old Testament texts of Isaiah and uh, Ezekiel, among others, that the place of the pit, the, the entrance to it is visible during the kingdom and smoke comes up from that pit the whole time such that we could go see it in the kingdom and that pit, endless smoke coming up in the kingdom is gonna be visible in the time that we live there. It's actually gonna be located in present day southern Jordan. Anyway, in recent time, you might know it's become fashionable to proclaim that there is no hell. You know, those who might tell you they know something of the Bible or that a loving God wouldn't punish people like this or that God gives us a second chance after death or that we just don't exist after we die, anything at all to negate this reality. And this is one of the clearest passages you can take them to that it is burning forever, doesn't end day and night. It's not a cessation of existence. It doesn't have any time limit on it. And while I might be willing, I guess, to empathize with someone who feels like this just feels too strong, too bad, too hard to imagine, um, the reality is scripture is abundantly clear. Uh, The nature, the duration is there. Unbelievers face what is described here. And what's so ironic about those false teachers who would try to convince you of otherwise about hell and whatever they might say about these things they, in what they're doing, they are contributing to the plight of these people because they are removing perhaps the one incentive that God himself might use in converting them to the truth. And if you want proof that this is a method of God, just look at what he's doing here. One of the statements he makes through an angel is believe, and another statement he makes through another angel is, or go to hell. And If we're so worried about what hell must mean for somebody who's there, the right response to that is not to diminish the reality of hell, 
It's to incorporate that message in an appropriate way in the things we say to people who don't know Jesus. So I, I take it as a very clear sign that a false teacher is not saved when they say that hell doesn't exist because they're actually working against the gospel itself at that point. They're removing the need for it. And as such, I think they've tell, told you more about their heart than they're telling you about your future. All right, Peter says this about such people and then we'll move on. Peter says, false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. How ironic that hell's very purpose in existing is to accommodate those who tell you today that it doesn't exist. All right, back to Revelation 14, verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. So in verse 12, I want you to notice the the text here for a moment. Verse 12, John says, here is the perseverance of saints, of the saints. But now notice, this verse is not a quote. Before that, you had an angel speaking in verse 11, speaking to the world. And then in verse 13, you see a voice from heaven picking up again. So in verse 12, it's not either an angel or a voice from heaven, it's John. So it's commentary by John on what is happening around him. And the commentary is, he's saying the perseverance of saints is this, that is, the way a saint will maintain their hope in the circumstances that they're facing, this difficult time that's now about to start. How do they maintain their hope? John says, here's how you maintain your hope during the last three and a half years. You do that by dying. That is, by understanding that dying is a blessing at this point in history. That's your hope. So that those who die in the Lord will have been released from living in a horrific, sinful world in which everyone wants to kill them. And they will have rested beyond that from the burden of trying to escape the enemy. And think about this, they're resting from surviving on meager supplies of food and water because they can't buy anything, and they're hiding. I mean, it's miserable for whatever time they live, of dealing with sickness, of dealing with weak bodies, of of whatever uncertainty lies around the corner, the fear of the next morning, all of that is gone when they die. And the hope of all believers in that day will be the rest that death brings. And I should add, by the way, that though our life here might not seem quite so bad as theirs, and certainly it isn't, in effect, that's the same for us. That is, the hope, when you hear the Bible talk about the hope of the believer, uh, modern teaching and its vapidness and biblical illiteracy tends to put its own thought into words. What does faith mean? What does hope mean? They make it what they want it to mean. But the Bible has a clear meaning in everything it says. And the hope of the Christian is not some ambiguous desire that you can make whatever you want. It's a very specific thing in the Bible. The hope of the Christian is resurrection. When the Bible talks about our hope, it's in the knowledge that the death of our body is not the end of us. That's a real hope in the face of the alternative. So, What is it to have a hope of Christianity? The hope of Christianity is I get to live again forever. All right, so what is the perseverance of a saint? The perseverance of a saint is to maintain a hopeful, faithful witness when the world is making that harder and harder and harder, even at the threat of your own death. How do you persevere against that and not retreat? That is, recant or hide or do something to dishonor your witness. Well, you persevere by knowing death is not my enemy. I don't have to fear it, it's a good thing. That's mean, that turns the whole thing 180 degrees. Rather than let the, the idea of death draw me away from a good witness, death being a blessing draws me toward a better witness because I don't mind it. It's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And then there's this mention of their deeds follow after them and this actually raises a very interesting aspect to why death is a blessing for them. Now, the mention of deeds should trigger for you immediately an understanding of what that's a reference to, right? That's a reference to eternal reward. That in persevering during difficult times, you are earning treasure. And conversely, 
do poorly in those same circumstances and you lose opportunity for something that God may have appointed to you as a reward for your perseverance. So persevering has a reward. But here's the interesting thing. When do you get your reward? Well, not until you're in the kingdom. That is, you know of what it will be when you move into the heavenly realm, but you don't actually receive it till you get back here on earth with Jesus because it has material form. It's part of something on earth. You get it in the kingdom. So before they die, they're suffering in a world they have nothing in and they're being persecuted. After they die, not only are they escaping the burden of it and receiving rest in those things, but they have entered into a resurrected state. When the kingdom begins... They will be resurrected, as we will be also, because we'll have already been taken from the earth at the rapture. But when you're resurrected, it means you're in your eternal form. You're, you're done, you're finished, you're set for all eternity. And you'll be entering into a kingdom as a resurrected body, which means, among other things, you receive your reward. And on top of that, because you're resurrected and glorified, you participate in the government which we'll talk more about, but let me just give you a flavor of this. I'm going somewhere I need to help you understand with this verse. In Revelation 20, and again, we're dropping into the middle of this, so just hold that. We'll come back to the whole context later, but just look at this one moment. John says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Now listen, the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received the mark on their forehead and their hand, which ones are we talking about? The perseverance, these are the saints who persevered into death, okay? And what was true about them, he says, they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, Believers who live to the end of tribulation, who do not die, who do not receive the blessing of death during the tribulation, what happens to them? Well, they live to the end, they're believers, they will go into the kingdom, but they go in with their natural bodies, the same ones you and I have right now. They haven't died, they haven't been resurrected. They just walk right in. We'll talk more about that later. That's not the only time I'm, getting, I'm giving you a preview of some of these things. But the consequence of that is they don't have their reward yet. And they don't rule in the government. They take a different place in society, which we'll cover. But those of us who have died prior to the kingdom, have been resurrected, are now in a state in which we participate with Jesus in the reigning of his government. The government of Jesus in the kingdom will be perfect. You can't have sinful people in the government, unlike today, where it's a prerequisite. (laughs) And so the... The believer that comes in natural and sinful can't participate in the government. They're the ones being ruled over because of their sin. It is the sinless people that have a place in the government because we can act in keeping with Jesus' requirements in perfection. So why is death a blessing? You escape the Antichrist and the terrors of that time. You receive your reward and you enter into the kingdom glorified. Every, all the other poor suckers who live through it all and then just come in in their natural bodies, they're a step behind the whole way. Now eventually they do as well get resurrected. There's a place for everyone eventually. But the point is, it's a blessing to die during the tribulation for all of those reasons. And so to know that is perseverance because you have no reason to avoid it, everything to gain for it. And in fact, martyrdom will be the norm. Verse 14, and then I looked and behold a white cloud and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand and another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe and then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. All right, I'm gonna take a minute to describe these two characters and then we'll get through it more quickly. It's not hard to see what's happening here. You have one who's on a cloud who looks like the son of man, has a sickle in his hand, and at the command of an angel, that one swung his sickle and reaped the earth. Now, who are these people? Well, John says the one who sits on the cloud is like a son of man, and is immediately that phrase, being messianic in most cases, makes us think, okay, this is Christ. Uh, There are several details, though, in this scenario that undermine that conclusion. First, this man has a golden crown on his head, but the Greek word used here for crown is Stephanos. If you remember the, the differences between the Stephanos and diadem we talked about earlier in this study, but the Greek word for Stephanos is not the kind of crown that you put on a king. Uh, in fact, the next time you see Jesus described in this book, in the action of chapter 
of, of Revelation is in chapter 19, and look what it said about him there. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, or in this case, the Greek word diadem. Diadem is the crown of a king, not a Stephanos. So in this case, we have someone wearing a Stephanos. That doesn't fit the pattern of, of Jesus. He's not earned the crown, he is the king. And then secondly, the one on the, crowd, the cloud, this son of man, he takes an order from an angel. I mean, that seems very unlikely that the Lord in his glorified form would take a command from an angel. And then third, that angel gives the command, and John, when he describes that angel, notice he says, and another angel. Now, another could just mean this is another angel like the ones we've heard in earlier chapters, but in the context, I think it means the first guy was an angel also, and so is this other guy. Why he chose to describe the first one as a, like a son of man, maybe it's an archangel. Maybe it's a different style of angel. In any event, it becomes clear, I think, as you go through the text that they're all angels. Um, Jesus describes a moment in chapter 24 of Matthew in which he's speaking of the last days in this time of history and he talks about a reaping of the earth. When he says that reaping takes place, look how he says it's done. He says in Matthew 24, 31, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now to be fair, this is a slightly different moment than the one we're looking at in Revelation 14, but I'm just making a reference here as a point. It's a pattern. God uses angels as messengers, he uses angels as reapers. Jesus himself is not the grim reaper. So it, it appears as though these are angels in both cases. Okay, so um, the angels are reaping here, and by the way, there's also a confirmation from Luke 16, now that I think about it, because in Luke 16, Jesus describing Lazarus and the rich man both dying, the believer is brought to the good place, escorted by angels. So that would seem to indicate that when we die, when believers die, angels move us from this world into the heavenly realm. All right. Anyway, uh, remember what Daniel told us would be true about this time? Looking now at the issue of reaping specifically, when Daniel spoke about the last half of tribulation, here's what he told us. He says, speaking of the Antichrist, he says, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise and another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. Okay, we've seen all that. Verse 25, he will speak out against the most high and here, notice, and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and law and they, meaning the saints, will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now this is that external reference that I'm using to tell you that this is a mid-trib chapter. Because I believe what Daniel's describing here is the same reaping that we are now seeing described in chapter 14, and Daniel says this reaping will happen for three and a half years, which is my way of saying, or my indication that we're looking at something starting here at mid-trib for the second half. In other words, the second half of tribulation is martyrdom. Martyrdom, martyrdom, martyrdom. And what you have is the, the Lord, by, by agency of angels, collecting all of those who he says are now ripe for gathering, and the mechanism of their death is the Antichrist and his minions, but the point is, it's God in heaven saying, time to start collecting these people, and they start coming up to heaven in a mass martyrdom phase, three and a half years of the Antichrist just wiping out believers. They've been given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time, okay? But as the angels go about their reaping, we get a little sign here at the end of Revelation that it's not a one-sided story or a one-sided battle. Chapter 17, and another angel came out of the temple, I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven and he also had a sharp sickle. And then another angel, the one who has a power over fire, came out from the altar and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Notice two angels, one calling to the other, just like we saw before. Again, further evidence that this is all angels, right? He calls and he says to him, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung its sickle, his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. All right, so there's imagery here in both cases. A reaping of a harvest, which is classic biblical symbology for believers, 
and a reaping of vines for a vine a wine press, which is classic symbology for wrath being poured out on unbelievers. So you have two gatherings of a sort, one first, then the other. They're both described here at mid-trib, but you need to understand that they're both a bit looking ahead. Like this is a summary in both cases of what's going to happen in the second half of tribulation. And they come in an order. First, you're going to see the death of the believer in time passing over three and a half years. But that's the first phase. During those two and a half, three and a half years, life for the unbeliever is pretty good. Their boss is on, in charge and he's having his way. Believers are the ones who have the trouble. But as it comes to the end of the three and a half years, the roles reverse. And at the very end, you're seeing described here in, in uh, symbolic terms, in poetic terms, if you will, you're hearing what God is going to eventually do at the very end. They're not happening at the same time. So this is a description of the death. Hear me on this. This last piece, verse 20. This is a summary description of what we will study more of in the future chapters, but it summarizes the death of the world's entire population of unbelievers in a moment at the end of tribulation. And obviously believers have been dying all along, and maybe a few unbelievers die for other reasons, but there's a mass wiping out a wine press of God's wrath against all who remain at the very end. And it will be a bloodbath, literally, producing a river of blood rising incredibly high, traveling impossibly far. Four and a half feet high, 200 miles long. Now, you might ask, how is that possible? Well, first, you're gonna find out later, all of this happens in a narrow ravine that runs in Israel called the Kidron Valley. And the blood will run through the Kidron Valley, but we'll get back to that. But even if you did that, even if you do the math, uh, you assume the flow is at the width of the valley and you put it at four and a half feet high and you let it run for 200 miles, that is 62 billion cubic feet of blood. I did the math. It would require over 300 billion people to produce that much blood. There's only eight billion on earth right now. So that means that you're not looking at a literal 200 mile long river four and a half feet wide uh, or four and a half feet tall. But the numbers being so specific, it must be a literal something. It just can't be that much, because it's impossible. But what could it be? Well, if you assume four and a half feet high, a swell of blood that's the width of the Kidron Valley, which is not a small thing, it's almost half a mile wide in some places, but four and a half feet high, and imagine it more like a tsunami wave, that if the wine press of God crushes the world's population of unbelievers in an instant and releases the blood in that instant and it just moves like a flood down the river. It flows for 200 miles. It's not 200 miles long. It moves that far because it's got so much force and so much size and momentum, but it's four and a half feet high of a swell of blood through a valley. It still would be unbelievable, obviously. So let that scene settle in your mind and balance any concerns you might have had for what the believers experienced during the three and a half years. To quote Paul, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, right? He'll take care of it in the end. All right, so as we end chapter 14, you're seeing described there at the very end the eventual fate of the unbelievers upon the return of Christ. But we gotta get from mid-trib to that moment. So, the specific moment happens at the end of tribulation. So this is a bit of a foreshadowing of the bold judgments which culminate in Christ's second coming and immense bloodshed. In the meantime, this is what you have to imagine for the next three and a half years. Uh, this is a relatively peaceful time on earth for the unbeliever. Only at the very end of tribulation does the turmoil kick up again. So let's do a quick review as we finish. We're gonna do this to kind of get us out of mid-trib because after tonight we're in the last half of tribulation and really at the very end because if you're kind of expecting three and a half more years of activity, I hate to break it to you, but we're gonna end up jumping as the book does from the mid-trib events to the very last piece of the, three and a half, of the seven years because what happens in between you just learned. Believers dying, unbelievers okay. That's three and a half year summary right there. And then you end up at the very end where things kick up again and that's where the book goes. But in the meantime, what do we learn? Well, obviously we just learned another chapter on our stack here which is that there are martyrdom of the, of the 144,000 angels preaching and then from that point forward you have evangelism ending and things just settle in. All right, now, remember this from earlier tonight, right? So from that scene, we're going to now add 
the last of the 144,000 die, whatever previous ones may have died, they all finish dying before we get out of mid-trib and have entered heaven. And then the last three and a half years look like this. All right, so you have martyrdom for believers, relative peace for unbelievers, and then we get to the very end, and you remember this from last few months ago probably, the six, the seven seal judgments end with the seventh, and the seventh of the seal judgments was what? It is all of the trumpet judgments. Breaking the seventh seal is all of the trumpet judgments starting. And then the same pattern. The seventh trumpet judgment is all of the bowl judgments happening. Where we last left off before we got into mid-trib was God had done the six seal judgments, then the seventh one opened, and that led to the six trumpet judgments, and then we were told, as we got into that transition chapter, before uh, chapter 10, we were told that there was one angel left waiting to blow his final trumpet, which is then gonna lead us into the seven bowl judgments. That's the last thing we heard, then we got into all the mid-trib, then we're gonna come back next week and we're gonna see that seventh angel again, still cooling his heels with that trumpet, saying, when do I get to blow the trumpet? And then the trumpet is blown. And then we move into the final stages of the seven years, which is the War of Armageddon. So we will study the War of Armageddon over the next several weeks because it is a multi-stage war and we'll go through every stage of it as it plays out. And the bull judgments are pushing that war along. A little over tonight, I apologize we started a little late, but hope that was helpful. We'll see you next week. Meanwhile, we'll pray and then for those who want Q&A, we'll stick around. Father, first of all, Father, as I study these things, I'm always reminded of how thankful I am that I live where I am and when I am, and that I have been given an opportunity to know you, and by that faith, Father, I'll be rescued from these things. Not for anything of my own, not because we deserved it, Father, not because we were better than, no reason at all, just for your, for your sake, for your glory. And thank you, Father, that we were included in that plan. I also thank you, Father, that there will be more to be included in that day to come, I do pray, Father, that you would help us feel the urgency of the time to speak the truth of what we learn to anyone we might have opportunity because, Father, how much better will it be for them that they be with us, with you, before these things happen. We thank you for that and pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.